Well, it's been a full morning, hasn't it? This has been such a blessing. Love that, love that video, Shane. You are a videographer's videographer. Good job. Um, <clears throat> in ninth, uh, actually, it was in 2012, I celebrated my 20th high school reunion. To be frank, it wasn't quite what I thought it was going to be. You see, whenever I was back in high school, in junior high, and I would imagine what it was going to be like going to my 20th high school class reunion, I pictured myself driving up in a Lamborghini. <laughs> driving up in that Lamborghini, pulling up, everybody would see who I was, of course. I'd step out with my head full of wavy black hair. <laughs> and I, they, I would kind of be known among the people because they would have seen the TV commercials for the, sex, the successful business that I had, but it didn't quite turn out that way. Uh, no, I, I pulled up in my parents' car. Melissa and I were still living in seminary housing at the time, but that was sort of how I fantasized about my 20th high school class reunion, and I bet I'm not alone out there. Now, maybe it wasn't a Lamborghini. Maybe you pictured yourself riding up on your prize stallion from your 50,000 acre, let's make it 100,000 acre ranch in prime Wyoming territory. We build these things up in our mind and there's a reason for that. There's something that we perceive as success. And I came from a generation that was told that uh, you can be the best in the world and if you work hard enough, you can be anything you want to be. As a matter of fact, there's a well-documented and researched, uh, well-documented research that's been going on about the relentless rise of narcissism in the United States of America. And there was a book that came out called The Narcissism Epidemic, Living in the Age of Entitlement. And in that, the authors say that our overinflated views of ourselves, well, this is what they say about that. They say it all began in the 1970s with the drive to develop self-esteem, to find one's self-expression, and the moving away from community-oriented thinking. Not only are there more narcissists than ever, but non-narcissistic people are seduced by the increasing emphasis on material wealth, physical appearance, celebrity worship, and attention-seeking. Standards have shifted sucking otherwise humble people into the vortex of granite countertops, tricked out MySpace pages, and plastic surgery. See, we've become a culture obsessed with a certain view of what success is, and most of it, probably even not realizing so, end up on a mission to gain that kind of success, what the world defines as success. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Timothy Keller talks about the lies that we've accepted in regard to success. And this is disconcerting, to say the least. More than other idols, personal success and achievement lead to a sense that we ourselves are God. To be the very best at what you do, to be at the top of the heap, means no one is like you, that you are supreme. See, there's a problem, because when I go to the Scriptures 
it doesn't seem that this is really consistent with being a disciple of Jesus Christ. When I read things like rejoicing with those who rejoice, not being jealous of them, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, and frankly, maybe this is something that you struggle with, and that's great. But where do you seek status? How is it that you view success? And can we understand how we can have eternal success? Not just a success that would be success in the eyes of man, not just success that would last a lifetime here on earth, but something that would continue on past the span of the age that we're living in. That's what we're going to be talking about today in Mark chapter 10. Jesus is going to be addressing this very topic while speaking to some very ambitious disciples. And if you would, please re stand with me for the reading of Mark chapter 10. We'll be in verses uh, 32. We'll start out with 32 to 41. Mark 10, verses 32 to 41. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to them, to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand, one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. You may be seated. So, you know, like this group of disciples, you and I are on a mission and today we're going to look at this passage, and we're going to be looking at some other verses in this chapter as well from three different perspectives. We're going to look at the wrong mission that we can often find ourselves on, the right mission, and then submission. What does it look like to live out the kind of mission that we are to be on as we follow Christ? So we're joining in today, and now we're making this, this move to Jerusalem. It's almost like the Bataan Death March, if you're familiar with what that is. Jesus is moving himself and the disciples and the crowds that are following him up to Jerusalem for Passover. And they're on this trek. I want to start first with the wrong mission. And let's begin with what I just read. And we see that Jesus is, again, leading this group to Jerusalem. And he's going to give them a front row seat to his torture and his death. They're going to see it all. 
And uh, why is that? They're afraid and they're amazed all at the same time. They seem to have some sense of what's about to happen. Jesus keeps telling them what's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem. It's the third time he's told them. And in essence, he's telling them that your leader is leading you right now straight into the lion's den. And they really don't know how to respond. They actually don't really get it. This kind of reminds me of my very first whitewater rafting trip. I'll never forget, I was 12 years old, and last week I showed you some, some pictures of the, the New River Gorge and what it looked like. There were some, some hills surrounding, but then at the bottom of that gorge is the New River, and there's some great whitewater rafting on that New River. And me and some friends of mine, we went with our church, and we were heading down the river, the, the river and we were going to hit the very first rapid. It's called Surprise. <laughs> and it's about a standing eight-foot wave. And when you hit that rapid, you've got to paddle your way over it or else it'll flip you over long ways. So we're all excited. You know, the adrenaline's going, those 12 and 13-year-olds. We hit that rapid. We paddle our way over it. We're excited. We're cheering. And we look back, and we're missing somebody. We're missing the guy. Now, we all thought we knew how to run a, a raft down a river until we found ourselves without a guide we quickly realized we didn't know what we were doing. We were terrified, because guess what? Here come the next set of rapids. Now think about those disciples for just a minute. They're going down the rapids, and they've had the best guide you can imagine. But what's happened? They're about to lose their guide. And they don't even know to what extent that he's going to be gone. So... Yeah, they're afraid. They're amazed. They know what he's done. They've seen the miracles, but they're about to lose their leader. And they still don't really get exactly what, it's, what this is going to entail. So after Jesus makes that announcement of his death, he's approached by two disciples in verse 35. It's the disciples James and John. And uh, they've asked him to, see, to be seated at his left and right in glory. And what does he say to them? Verse 30, he says, uh, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He asks them this question, and what do they, what do they say? Yep. yep. You bet we can. Bring it on. No problem. Now, I don't think they really understand, even though Jesus said it explicitly, what drinking that cup and being baptized with that baptism is going to entail. Um, truthfully, I believe that they have totally missed it. I think that these two disciples believe that Jesus is setting up his kingdom such that uh, they are going to be literally sitting on either side of a throne. They don't get that they're going to have to live this life of suffering before they can go in, into this kingdom truly. So they still don't fully get it yet. And they want to be renowned. They want to have these two seats of honor. You see, they've totally missed it. They aren't ambitious for the kingdom. They're just ambitious for themselves. So we get this first wrong mission. It's the hunger for power. It's this hunger for power. And the passage brings out the danger of hungering for power because in doing so, you can miss it altogether. 
And through the years, a lot of people have talked about the dangers of ambition. And I want to look back through history at a few statements that have been made about ambition. Uh, John Stott, this is recent, <clears throat> said, Our world and even the church is full of Jameses and Johns, go-getters and status seekers, hungry for honor and prestige, measuring life by achievements, and everlastingly dreaming of success. Thomas Akempa said, The devil is continually tempting thee to seek high things, to go after honors. And then Bernard of Clairvaux, he was a Dutch monk, said that ambitious is, ambition is a secret poison, the father of spite and mother of hypocrisy, the moth of holiness and cause of madness, crucifying and disquieting all that it take hold of. See, through the centuries, they understood that one of the most dangerous things we can be infected with is this unhealthy sense of ambition and success. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying don't try to provide the best education for your kids. I'm not saying don't do the best you can. I'm not saying go after new investors or new real estate ventures, whatever that may be. But there's a very significant difference between wanting to do your best and having to be the best. Between wanting to do the best for your kids and having to have the best kids. There's a difference between these things. Uh, <clears throat> a question I've had to start asking myself is this. If God were to answer my prayers and bring revival to the city of Sheridan through the ministry of another church, would I still stand back and simply rejoice for his work being done? And it's a humbling question. Now, this is hard because of what our culture calls great and the tendency to be tempted to be great in the eyes of our culture. So then this wrong mission is this hunger for power. So then what's the right mission? I'm going to look again at verse 33 and 34. <clears throat> again, this is Jesus speaking of what's going to happen. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, he says, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Do you want to know what the most perfect picture of success in all of humanity is? That's it. He could not have stated it more plainly that, <clears throat> than he just did. Condemned to death, mocked, spit upon, flogged. And if you saw the movie The Passion of Christ, you know what that flogging or that scourging entailed, the, the beating that Christ took. And then death by crucifixion at the ripe old age of 33 years old. And this is the perfect picture of success. This is the example of success, a life lived perfectly in the will of God, and yet it has this ending. Um, I want to jump now now, because then Jesus is going to teach something explicitly to the disciples about success, starting in verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and, and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, 
and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the suffering mission of Jesus is the model for suffering service as a disciple. This is the sign of true greatness. And the point is suffering. Um, life is full of suffering in some manner or another. So the right mission is suffering to serve. It's suffering to serve. You know, there's all kinds of halls of fame out there nowadays. I was looking through them. There's, there's the basketball hall of fame. There's the football hall of fame. There's the country music hall of fame. There's the rock and roll hall of fame. Do you know what the Christian hall of fame is? It's Hebrews chapter 11. And as you go down through Hebrews chapter 11, it calls up all these heroes of the Bible that did it right, and they were so not perfect. I mean, you've got Abel and Enoch. You've got Noah, who, if you recall, the first thing he did was get drunk when he stepped off the ark. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Sarah, who laughed. You've got the Israelites that crossed the Red Sea. They get called out in Hebrews chapter 11, even though they're going to rebel. And you've got Rahab the prostitute. And what does it say about them? Well, in Hebrews 11, 36 through 38, it says this, speaking of them and others. It says they suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheeps and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. And what does it say about them? The world was not worthy of them. This is the Christian Hall of Fame. It says they wandered in deserts and mountains. Now, frankly, this does not suit the American dream, does it? But then, does the American dream really deliver what it seems to promise to anyway? I came across two interviews of uh, two contemporary celebrities. I don't know if there's any Radiohead fans out there or not. Maybe there is, maybe not. But he, the, the guitarist, the front man for the band Radiohead, made millions in this interview where they're contemplating this question, does wealth and fame and success fill the emptiness in the human heart? This is what the guitarist said. He said, I thought when I got where I wanted to be, everything would be different. I'd be somewhere else. I thought I'd be all, it'd be all white, fluffy clouds. And he says, and then I got there, and I'm still here. And when the interviewer asked, Why in the, what in the end have you done, I'm sorry, why in the end have you done what you've done? He replied and said, well, it's filling the hole. He said, that's all anyone does. And then the interviewer asked him the question, well, what happens to the hole? And after a long pause, he said, well, it's still there. Then NBA superstar Kevin Durant, he was asked about his spike and technicals and fouls, ejections in uh, the last season he was in. And he said, well, it's just my emotions and passion for the game. After winning that championship, I learned that much hadn't changed. He said, I thought it would fill a certain void, and it didn't. You see, we are not made to go through life just trying to please ourselves and gain this status and this success. We aren't made to do that. God didn't make us that way. 
So then what do we do? Well, that brings us finally to submission. Suffering and serving to greatness. This is God's way. So how do we do that? Frankly, I can, I can walk across the room and stub my toe while trying to get the Bible, thinking, well, I've suffered for the Lord today. God bless me. <laughs> um, it's not easy in an American context where we are protected under the law to ask, well, how do I, how do I suffer for Christ? So I want to offer a few very practical ways for you and I to start suffering in however small of a way. And suffering for one person may not be suffering for another person. And I also want to add that you know, some of you are suffering right now. You may be in a season of self-care. If that's, if that's the place where you're at, uh, let us comfort you, okay? So, if you're not, though, please consider these, these five ways. First of all, we're going to start very sort of granular here. Come to church. Just show up. Now, for some of you, you're like, well, duh, Chad, I just... But, you know, for some, it's not that way. If you have been hurt by church, if you had a bad experience, if you don't like being in crowds, coming to church is a way of suffering. But you know what? It's something you're called to do. Jesus said for us to assemble together, not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. So you know what? Just showing up, I get it. It can be a form of suffering for many, many people. It means you may have to sacrifice something on a, on a Saturday night. It means you may have to sacrifice sleep on a Sunday morning. But first of all, just getting to church. Secondly, reach out to a suffering person. One of the beautiful parts of the body of Christ is that we grieve with those who grieve. We hurt with those who hurt. We don't we don't just want to attract the suffering people to comfort them, although we do want to do that. Church is also about bringing in the comfortable people to make them suffer, to be around the hurting people, to be around the suffering people. Now, you may be saying to yourself, well, I would suffer with someone if I knew who was suffering. That leads me to the next point. Volunteer. Volunteer. Get involved. A few weeks ago, I threw up a slide of all of the ways you can get connected to serve the least of these here in our, and shared and those who really can't return the favor. And there's all kinds of things you can get involved in here. All of these organizations and ministries we have here at our church are looking for help. Uh, there's opportunities for discipleship, mentorship, teaching, turning a wrench, cleaning something up. And how do you get involved? Oh, it's a little hard to see. Basically, you just email us office at fbcsheridanwy.org. That's office at fbcsheridanwy.org. Or call the phone number 307-674-6693, and we'll get you in touch with the right people so you can start serving in some capacity, volunteering. Number four, get plugged into community. How do you do that here at First Baptist? We've got a number of groups that meet through the week. We've got community groups that meet in people's homes. We've got Sunday school classes. There's a group that meets on, of men that meet on Sunday night. There's various women Bibles, uh, women's Bible studies through the week. These are ways you can get plugged in 
and you can learn about who is suffering among us. You know, oftentimes it's in small groups where you're sharing prayer requests with each other. That's how you find out what is going on in people's lives. And then lastly, share your faith. Tell people how they can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Tell people how they can make their eternal success secure by trusting Christ as their Savior. Yeah, that is not an easy thing to do. It takes courage. You don't know how the other person is going to respond. You could be rejected. But if Christ were to show up in all his glory right here in the auditorium today, and he looked at us and said, I've got something that I want each and every one of you to do. He said, in the course of the next month, I want you to share the gospel with one person. You know what? I think we would all be extremely relieved. Oh, okay. You can do this. But this is about suffering for Christ. This is about taking some kind of small step towards the kind of suffering service that we're talking about. So to put this into one statement, suffer and serve to greatness. Suffer and serve to greatness. The kind of eternal success that we would all like to have. In closing, I want to talk briefly about a story between a spider and a a pig. And uh, you may have read this story. You may have seen one of the movies that came out called Charlotte's Web. And it's this story about this runt pig who was about to be euthanized by the farmer, but his daughter ran out and said, hey, don't kill the pig, I want to take care of it. And it's a real cute pig, and everybody's cheering for the pig. So he says, okay, so the the young lady puts the pig in a stall where there's a spider named Charlotte. Now the pig's kind kind of nervous, because the pig realizes as he puts on weight, he becomes a, a candidate for bacon. So Charlotte decides, I'm going to help this pig. So Charlotte in her web would spin little messages like some pig so that, so that this little pig could gain some notoriety. And she spends her life serving, helping this pig not to go to slaughter. So in the very closing scene, Charlotte is sitting there dying on one of the rafters in the barn to the tune in the distance of Wilbur at the state fair getting all his blue ribbons, therefore nullifying the chance that he's ever going to go to slaughter. But you see that life of Charlotte, quiet service. No one would ever know she was the one that did what she did, laying down her life so that this friend of hers could survive. See, that's the kind of suffering service that you and I are called to, seeking no glory for ourselves, seeking no notoriety for ourselves, seeking no praises from others, but quietly living a life of service so that when we step into God's presence, he can say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. Please pray with me. Lord, I pray that we would embrace this kind of suffering life of discipleship, Lord, as we continue on the road of this life, that we would be people on a mission to serve you. 
not looking to ourself, not seeking our own agenda, not seeking our own glory, but always seeking to glorify you. And Lord, I pray that right now you would prepare our hearts as we enter into this most holy act of communion, that we would meditate on your truth and the sacrifice that you have made for us. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.